0: I'm almost uh, certain that uh, there will be uh, confrontation. Although it is not my desire and my wish that this should happen, because it shouldn't. Because we, the Māori people, shouldn't be battling for our land. It should be ours of right. Kia ora, and welcome to Ko Tamu, Tamu ao Māori Takeaways, Stuff podcast about te ao Māori. I'm Rapa, real Māori translator at Stuff, and I'm joined by senior Potiaki reporter Joel Maxwell. Tēnā koe, Joel.
1: Tēnā koe, e hoa. Tēnā koutou, kia koutou e mai ana, kia Māua, rapa.
0: Kua ketu we ketu we've been doing a bit of digging around recently about a particular moment in Māori and actually, Aotearoa history. It's been a significant anniversary this week. Joel, do you want to let our kai fakarongo, our taringa karikari, in on our kaupapa?
1: I, well, uh, what we're uh, having a little talk about, a or about uh, today, is the 45th uh, anniversary of the uh, of the Bastion Point occupation, um, which was, I think, a, a pivotal moment in in understanding Maori um, connection to our land, and also trying to get a little bit of it back. Back in 1976, we have Prime Minister Rob Muldoon, otherwise known to many as as Piggy, um, who has decided to. Sell off the last bit of land belonging to essentially belonging to Ngati Whatua Orake in the middle of Auckland, beautiful prime land. It was taken uh, in, under the Public Work Acts like more than 100 years earlier to defend against potential Russian invasion, which sounds a little weird. It
0: never came that Russian invasion.
1: We're speaking English, we are so. Um, it was, <laughs> it was never returned and it ended up getting given back to the council in Auckland. And then uh, Muldoon decided he would sell that last little chunk off is high end um, subdivision with nice parks for people and that was i, th- I think the final straw for a, for a lot of people within the hapu of Ngati Fatua uh, and in the end um they decided to have a little bit of an occupation of their own land to try and stop the sale and which they did and it ended up lasting 506 in a little bit days on the 507th day they were removed 220 odd were arrested and about 800 Police, military, armed defender squad members moved in and took them away. And what's a little bit of an overkill. So the whole thing is, uh, to me, about greed by the Crown to try and get this land, that's plum land right in the middle of Auckland. They didn't want this uh, hapū to have it. And so over about 100 years, they slowly chipped away at it with public acquisitions and also buying it from individuals. The whole thing started, I think, in about 1869, when what had been tribal land was split up by the Native Land Court and given over as individual titles to 13 people, which kind of like threw a hand grenade into a traditional way of of communal land ownership, for want of a better word. And, and so I think to me it brings up words like Fenwa. With, uh, and what they mean to Māori and perhaps up, you can I'll throw this question to you what, what does Fenua mean? and it has multiple meanings doesn't it in tell Māori
0: yeah well I mean just to, before we get on to the Fenua part um, you're right about how it was broken up and and essentially delivered to, to specific people within that hapu and that iwi and that's a very Pākehā way of thinking because land wasn't thought of in that way pre-Pākehā arriving to Aotearoa it wasn't particular person's land. It belonged to an iwi, to a hapū, and everybody lived on the land. It was everybody's land. So the idea of having a particular person in charge of the land didn't really sit very well with Māori, um, which caused a whole lot of controversies later on, a bit bit of a chain effect. But to get back to your question, yeah, we do have this kupu whenua, and there are actually a few kupu in this podcast, so it's probably worth explaining some of them to our non-maori speaking listeners just so that everyone's on the same waka with us and we all know what's going on. So, very briefly, fenua most commonly means land, um, ground, but it also embodies that connection that we have to the fenua as well because fenua is your placenta and it just it just goes to show how connected maori are to the land that they come from that we have that word for our connection to our mother when we're in the womb is the same same word that we have for our connection to the land, so that fenua has has a meaning of connection on on, on various levels. Papa kāinga.
1: That's another word that pops into my head when I think of this block of land.
0: Papa kāinga, uh, Papa, another word for fenua, ground. In this in this instance, and kāinga is home. So it's it's the the grounds where your home is essentially your your safe haven where you feel safe and where you feel grounded and calm. That's your papa kāinga. And that's, that's different for every every iwi. Normally it's within their own rohe, their own region. That's your papakainga, where you feel most at home and you feel safest. A couple of other ones we need to point out are tangata whenua and mana whenua and the differences between those. Tangata whenua you'll hear in this podcast is the people of the land, the hosts, the people who belong on that land, who call it their own land. And that's different to mana whenua uh, in the sense that Mana is something held by the tangata whenua. So mana, we could write a whole PhD thesis on this and still not quite understand it, but at a very, very basic level, mana are the rights to a piece of land in this instance. So mana whenua are the rights to that land that the tangata whenua have.
1: Right, and these are important issues. And obviously... um the the people who initially made that stand were led by a um, by one of the leaders within that hapu, within the iwi. His name was Joe Hawke, and he started up a committee to occupy that land, and it drew a lot of different people on board over that period that they stayed there. You heard Joe at the top of the podcast speaking. Tragically, also during the occupation, a young girl, uh, Joannie, Five years old and a member of the Hawk Fano died in a fire, adding to the challenges for the people dedicated to this cause.
0: That's right, yeah. And we're gonna we're gonna hear uh, some interviews uh, with a couple of very significant figures who are up at Bastion Point at Tukaparafou, its real Maori name, um, and their connection to Joe Hawk, as you mentioned, but also their connection to the Fenua up there. What their story is and how they remember it, and and our takeaways from from their all. And the first person that we spoke to around Takaparafo was Hilda Helkiard-Harawira, who was there during the occupation, and she shared some of her whakaro with us.
2: So I sort of just went up to have a look and uh, was immediately um, caught up with the issue which was so simple. You know, Ngāti Whātua uh, had very little land
1: left I, I was alive at the time, but I was just a little kid, and I was up in Tamaki growing up there. Um, I only have the vaguest recollections of it. What was that time like? People say it's like a renaissance renaissance of um, for, for things Māori, for the language, for our rights, and for retaining whenua. Oh, <clears throat> it was a beautiful community.
2: There wasn't one thing happening. There was always different things happening, like my mother-in-law, Titawhai, talks about how she was a, you know, a, a supporter on the outside, that she would go with Joe Hawke to Him meeting with all kinds of agencies. You had Alec Hawke and a lot of the the cousins from Bastion Point that formed the band Herbs. Mm. Well, before that it was called Papa, you know, standing on shaky ground Ngāti Fatua, And so, you know, they popularised a lot of the um, struggle messages through, you know, waiata that are still... That are still contemporary and iconic these days, you know, um, mm. nuclear wasters um, falling down. You know, those take were happening all at the same time. So you had music, you had politics, we had, um, and we had the fire, which was uh, uh, devastating. And um, there's always a price to pay, we say in Whenua Māori. And people may see the glitz today, but, you know, the whole. Orakei Māori Action Committee um, lost jobs, couldn't get jobs for a long time. They were penalised and punished by the Crown, by other employment companies that wouldn't take them on. So they suffered. And throughout this time, I understand you were
1: hapū, you were pregnant.
2: During the arrest. During the arrest. During the arrest, Yes. And I knew uh, I was safe. Um, and I suppose I didn't really know my connections to Ngāti Whātua back then, but my grandmother was Ngāti Whātua and And um, I just made a decision that I I wanted to stand there. I don't know why, but I did. I was just so supportive of what the Ngāti Whātua Ki were doing. I wasn't harmed. Uh, you know, we were approached by two cops, we were told to behave. And we all did, and we all got carted off in vans, um, singing our,
1: to our, in top of our lungs, uh, singing songs about Bastion Point. Because it was 800 cops and armed defender squad members and Navy and Army. It was massive overkill. What were you guys singing when you see them amassing around you?
2: Everyone was quite, uh, you know, peaceful in their hearts. We had some inside hanui uh, I was inside hanui. We, so I was sitting down with, and you know, one of my, my neighbours said to me, kato Hilda. So, <laughs> so I wasn't to sort of lash out with my tongue. There were others who circled the whole of Arohanui. If you see the picture, and then you you had Tim Shadbot's poem, Hey you, have you got three minutes to spare? And he does the whole poem about how Arohanui was put together and then uh, taken down as a, one, the first thing they did was take the hui down mm. to stop us um, having the ability
1: to meet there. Mm. Did you look in the eye of some of those police officers? Oh yes, oh yes. Well, what was that moment like when you looked at them? What are you doing here, brother? What are you doing here? <laughs> we're your own people. So there were Maori police officers there.
2: Maori, Pacific Islander. My brother was uh, in the army, and you know, I'm glad they weren't brought in, but. Um, Yes, we uh, did the big guilt trip on the main day and we heard later that um, many of them had taken leave that day, t- took stress leave afterwards. Mm. Some found it quite traumatic to you know, listen to us going, well, what are you doing to us, brother? Mm. You know these bastards don't care about us, they're stealing our land, blah, 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 blah,
0: blah. It must be quite a difficult situation to be put in as a police officer who's Maori or, or maybe Pacific Islander, having to essentially fight against your own people because it's your mahi. Um, I mean, we saw that in the Springbok yeah. tour as well. There were lots of Māori cops yes. who, who were put right on the front lines, um, probably just to, to cause more havoc than anything else. It must be quite a difficult thing to do. Must have been for them. Mm.
1: Do you feel much sympathy for them?
2: Mm, um, I just think it's something that, you know, everybody has to uh,
1: figure out what side they're on. Obviously, in the long run, there were um, Ngāti Whātua who were able to get back some of the land and get a payment. But to you, what is the biggest thing, the biggest gain that came out of sticking it out for those 506, 507 days?
2: Other than the the wonderful Wānanga, we, we learnt stuff that you could never learn in a university, um, I think, is watching Ngāti Whātua and the gains that they've made for their people today. To me, that's the most positive thing that's come out of this, is watching them assert their rangatiratanga. And also, I have to say, I love the partnership that they have with the um, Auckland City Council. You know, when people say that co-governance or co-management can't work, I just say, hey, take a look at this. Mm. To say that, you know, that it's too extreme to do is, like, ridiculous. I think they've been at this for maybe over 20 or so years. I'm not sure how
1: long. Yeah, who are Māori katoa. Are there benefits for all of us as Māori from that occupation? I think so. Um, one, to
2: see that it can be done. Some of our battles were won by just ordinary people and the tenacity of ordinary people with lots of community support. That it can be done, it can be won, if the struggle is just and uh, people get on board.
1: You know, everybody's got to decide what side they're on. And there was this in- incredible moment when the police swarmed onto this place. And some of them are Māori. And they're removing people from their land.
0: Yeah, it can't be very easy. I mean, they are just doing their job. But I'm sure there's a lot of internal conflict whenever they're thrown into a position like that where they have to essentially fight against their own people. And there'll be many of those policemen um, and, and other authority figures who, who went home at the end of the night probably not feeling great about a, a good day's work.
1: Yeah, for all Māori, we, we have this question we face of how Far we go into Tao Pākea. And I just have a question for you, Tota. If you're in that position, if you had a family to support, would you go on to Putafo and remove those folks or would you just quietly not turn up that day or not take that job?
0: Yeah, that's a really difficult one, isn't it, Joel? I might get COVID. <laughs> it's 24 hour COVID. We all know about those 24 hour COVID cases. I think that might be the best option.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough for everybody involved. Hilda, reading between the lines of what she's saying, she didn't have a lot of time or the Māori who chose not to support them. But I can, I can kind of see both sides.
0: We were so fortunate to be able to speak to Sharon Hawke, tamāhine, daughter of Joe Hawke, who was at Takaparafo for the noho. We asked her to set the scene for us.
3: If I was to stand on Takaparafo right this minute, uh, I'd be standing beside my father's grave and Joanne's memorial, and you'd see uh, reserve land with no buildings on it. It would look out towards Rangitoto. There's definitely a feeling of home, of Papa papatunuku. There's a feeling of a whole lot of memories, uh, especially with
1: um, Joanne's memorial. It's a beautiful, important part of the Fenua for Ngāti Whātua. And it's not surprising then that the Crown seemed to spend an awful lot of time and energy chipping away and taking, trying to take that land, alienate it from your your iwi over 100-odd plus years.
3: Well, they gave it a good go. Um, They can't say that they won. We can.
1: I've watched your dad speak. I've only seen him on video and stuff talking, and it's such an experience. He was a fantastic orator. But also, uh, I've said this before, he seems to speak without a, a real sense of bitterness. Uh, he speaks with a positivity that really is quite uplifting for people who watch him. But he had every right to be bitter and angry, I think, from what I have understand about what happened up there. And part of that was there was that village that I think he lived in uh, in the early 50s, which was cleared out, that not a lot of New Zealanders even know about what happened there. you know, And uh, the thing called Boot Hill. Can you talk us through what happened then?
3: Uh, sure, Joel. So our village was down on the par, we call it, at uh, Okahu Bay. Uh, the papakanga there was um, had been settled by us for at least 100 and odd years. My dad's mother was born there. It was the heartbeat of our people. And Dad remembers being a 10-year-old holding his grandmother's big skirts. In those days they were really layered, multi-layered skirts. And he got lost in holding her because she was howling at the burning down of her whare by the Auckland City Council workers. Our village was razed to the ground um, by an order from the Crown. So basically we were booted up the hill and that's why it became known synonymously as Boot Hill. And back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, if you caught a cab from town and say Boot Hill, the drivers knew exactly where to go. Didn't say Kitimwana Street. Some saw it as a bad name because of its Western American connotation, but in fact, it was exactly what it was. We got booted up the hill.
1: Did your dad ever talk much about how that affected him, what it did to him?
3: He only ever talked about that. And you can imagine an image of a young child holding on to his grandmother. You can imagine his fear. You can speculate the trepidation. You can understand his commitment now uh, to fighting that injustice in you know we talk about intergenerational trauma. My dad was traumatized by that, and why is he not bitter? Why was he never hateful towards the enemy? Um He'd say things like, "Well, I needed a Muldoon. I needed a Muldoon to polarize the issues of land and justice because every time Muldoon gave it air, the support
1: it just grew. Mm. And so uh, time moves on, and we get to day, I think, 507 of this occupation, and all of a sudden there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of police, armed offenders. The Navy's, I think, off the coast. The Army's prepared to end this occupation. Can you talk me through, were you there on that day when when they came in?
3: So that was the first eviction. We had three. Mm. Uh, That first one was... uh, I coined it uh, from a dear friend who called it The Day New Zealand Cried. It was very uh, scary. I thought we were going to lose our lives. Uh, When you see the military fashion that the police came onto the land, of their big army trucks, it was frightening. The helicopters were whirring around, whether they'd be the Air Force. One was Air Force, but I think the other were media. There was a naval ship in the Waitamata Harbour. Why? <laughs> <Fuck>. <laughs> Are they going to shoot us? Going to escape <laughs> on a waka.
0: <wucker. laughs>
3: and it was highly emotional. Uh, but we'd had three weeks mm. of false attempts by the by the Crown. They, they kept saying they're coming, they're coming because they said and agreed that they would give us warning when they would come in to lead a ordered arrest. But they didn't. They lied. When they did come, they came without warning. And so we had three weeks of getting up early and, you know, practising how to be arrested, you know, make your body limp. All you have to give is your name and your occupation. Mm-hmm. And your age. So we were practising all that. that This was a peaceful protest. There was to be no violence. There was to be no aggravation, no response to anything. If the police did anything to make you angry, you had to suck it up. And when it did come, well, it's a bit like losing a parent. You know they're going to go, but when they do go, it's a huge shock. I got shoved into buses, um, sent to Central. They had to open up all the cells because they couldn't fit us. So luckily they gave my grandparents a couple of chairs to sit on in the hallways. Um, But yeah, it just kind of, it was unreal, unreal feeling to be taken off our land yet again.
1: We seem to be at a crossroads at the moment in terms of relationships between Māori and Tauiwi and in, in Aotearoa. You know, it's. Do you feel like there are lessons that can be learnt that can help us deal with these things like co-governance from from folk?
3: Well, you know, I work with a lot of Pākehā who have already sorted out their stuff. You know, and they call themselves um, uh, Te Tiriti Tangata. So they've done their homework. They've done their research. They've realised that yeah, Māori are actually are uh, needing to be supported in terms of our economic, uh, educational developments that we need the or The ones that don't want to go to Tiriti workshops and realise the true history of this country are the people and the corporates. Now, they're the same in any other country, any other Western country. They will not change mm. unless they see... <sighs> and feel the need to. So the whole purpose of talking to you is to share the story, deal with the amnesia that's out there, that there'll be a member of one of those families that will hear our story, that will then be sitting at the table with papa and mama and they will bring up the corridor. Where were you? when the eviction took place? What were you doing? Or what was my grandfather doing? What was my grandmother doing? So, you know, for me, so I'm not gonna tackle the Society of New Zealand because they have not given my people the time of day. I'm into talking with people who wanna hear the kōrero. I'm into talking with people who have not heard it yet, but have an open ear. And if they just happen to be, you know, CEOs of New Zealand or whatever, then fine, okay to But whoever our audience is, that amnesia has to stop. Mm. The inequity of telling the history of te iwi Māori has to stop.
1: And one last thing, that 16-and-a-half-year-old who's sitting in that cell in Auckland who's been taken off her land, what does she say to other 16-and-a-half-year-old Māori um, people out there who might be listening to this? You might be wondering where they sit in the world, their place in this thing.
3: You know, sixteen-year-olds are more uh, concerned with their mates. You know, and where are we going? What fun are we going to have? You know, who are we going to have this fun with? Uh, I grew up too quick. I think um, I missed out on being a sixteen-year-old. And so I really can't answer that question, sorry Joel. But this 61-year-old can tell you I would do it again.
1: Imagine being 16 and being in this incredible moment of history, this changed people's opinions and ideas and reshaped a new generation coming into how they approached the injustices that Māori had, um, had experienced around their land because this was just so damn obviously wrong. And she was there as a kid. I, I wasn't doing that sort of thing when I was sixteen.
0: I was probably staying at home watching TV. So um, I feel a little bit inadequate after having listened to her court it all around how how much she was at the front line of these kinds of co-papa and that the sorts of things that were going on for her at that time. Um, it's it's just it's pretty special listening to something like that.
1: Yeah, I was um, I was particularly um, moved by the discussion she had around the removal of that village. There was. That village that was um, moved on by the authorities back in the early 50s, essentially for high, you know, they said it was for like, you know, because it was unhealthy to live there. But the Queen was visiting in 53 and, and you know, it's well known that they just wanted to clear out a, a supposed eyesore so it wouldn't upset the Queen's visit. Um, it's a shocking thing. And, you know, the impact it had on the likes of Joe Hawk was obviously incredible. Sharon shared some of that with us. And um, and also she talked about wanting to stop this this amnesia that we have for these for these things that have happened and that really affected me hearing that because um, you know memories history our past these are all things that um, that hold you together whether you're a young nation like Aotearoa New Zealand or an ageing middle-aged man like myself you've got to, <laughs> you need to know your past remember your history it's, sometimes it's the only thing that's holding you together. And other times it's, it's really hard to deal with. Um, but, you know, Joe Hawke for me is my hero in that case. And that He had this trauma, he had this pain and was this positive force for change within his hapu, iwi and Māori in general and and everybody in New Zealand.
0: Yeah, there is a lot of selective amnesia happening at the moment in our aisle, isn't there? Uh, on both sides, you know, reu, uh, Pākehā might Māori mai, there are moments of selective amnesia where you just pick and choose the parts of history you want to remember, and you sort of forget about the other ones that don't quite put you in the best light. And we see that all the time. You know, it's a very political issue. And Sharon's right. We can't forget these things because they are so very important to to our development as a nation. Whether you are Maori or not, um, there's there's a lot of takeaways to be to be gained from from remembering Kopapa like this. So it is really important, 45 years on, to continue to have these, uh, these hui and remember what happened, um, remember the fights that were fought and the losses that were felt as well. But then also look at how far we've come since then.
1: You've been listening to Tummy Tamutamu, Ao Māori Takeaways, a stuffed podcast about the Ao Māori. I'm Joel and I've been talking with Upper.
0: Tēnā tū, Ke ora rā, tō. Tēnā katoa. I taringa pī paho. Thank you so much everyone for listening to Kotamutamu. Tamu. Previous episodes of this podcast are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so check them out so you're all up to date. In the meantime, thanks to our production team Chris Reed, Jin Black, and Connor Scott, and to our Potiaki reporter Katie Doyle. Matewa e hoa mā. Matewa. Prepare for an unfiltered journey through the harsh realities of infertility. My name's Nadine Higgins. I'm a broadcaster,
3: a journalist, and I've been trying to make a baby with my husband.
0: That's me, I'm Dan, and we reckon infertility is lonely enough without making it a dirty little secret. In The Human Race with Dan and Nadine Higgins, we share raw and unvarnished stories of couples who have faced the brutal truth of infertility. Unless you've been in it, it's, it's really tough and really lonely. Yeah, and also, this is really weird, but baby showers? You don't need to open the presents in front of everyone. Confronting the harsh reality that not every story has a happy ending. This very blunt, abrasive doctor who I had, you know, had not seen before who delivered the news it's just like... You'll probably never have a natural period again, and you'll probably never have a baby. The Human Race, where we share the untold stories of couples in the race of their lives to create a life. I feel like I nearly missed out, and I got to do it. And so I feel really lucky. So it's been incredibly positive. Listen today at stuff.co.nz slash race or wherever you get your podcasts. The Human Race is proudly brought to you by Elevate.